You know, a couple of guys who work in sports who have nothing to do are trying to pass the time. Uh, back again with our podcast series, Jim Alexander of the Riverside Press Enterprise and the Southern California News Groups joins me this afternoon at uh, exactly 105. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, <laughs> so a story. I've been doing movies, Jim, so we're not going to talk about movies. And, you know, to quote the late Alan Melman, we'll kind of hit to all fields today with you. Um, there is a there is a, a you know, there is a film that I want to talk to you about uh, in it. But tell me what your schedule has been like. We were discussing it a little bit earlier. Um, I know you're 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 sheltered at home. You're self-quarantining um, since the order came down a couple of weeks ago. What has day to day been like day to day life been like for you? I have spending I have been spending a lot of time on the phone. I'm doing three or four columns a week, but it's it's substantially different from what I normally do because I'm not going out to the ballpark or the arena any, anymore. I'm doing everything by phone and you know, it it seems to be working. It's it's funny because I'm not used to a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday shift. And that's what I've been doing. I mean, it, it's I I am doing what the rest of the world has always done only i'm doing it at home so i guess there's <laughs> i'm i'm much luckier than most other people believe me but so the other the other the other day my wife asked me so what's your usually and she'll ask me she'll go what's your schedule this week so she asked me on sunday what's your schedule this week and i looked at her and i said same as it was last week <laughs> what what <laughs> same you- as it will be the next week what were you on tap to do, Jim, when when this all came down? I mean, I just to let you know, we talked about it in other some of the other podcasts I've done. You know, I was at the Big West tournament. I was in Anaheim in a hotel room on Wednesday, and then got, got up on Thursday. We had the uh, CSUN had the twelve noon game, so we right. had an order to get on the bus at ten twenty. We're all in the hotel getting ready to go to the bus, and all of a sudden, I actually I heard I, I heard some yelling in the hallway. It was Lamine Janae upset about something and then about 10 minutes to 10 they told us yeah the tournament is canceled so i don't know what 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 was your situation when the word came down i was i was scheduled to go down and i was probably going to leave around 10 or 10 30 and i had been in contact with mike villamore the uh the uh, public relations guy for the big west their their media relations director and we had been trying to set up an interview with with dennis farrell and we were going to do it there at the arena between games, as it turned out, I wound up doing it on the phone a week later, but, and I had sent him an email that morning because of the fact that there were rumblings that other leagues were going to shut down and what have you. And this was after the, the, the morning after the Rudy Gobert revelation that, that he had COVID-19 and the NBA shut down. And so everybody else was kind of on edge and so I sent him an email. What's the status? What's your guy's status? I didn't hear anything back until about 930 when he sent out the uh, the uh, memorandum that the tournament was going to be canceled. And I it, it sort of caught me by surprise. But then on the other hand, it sort of didn't catch me by surprise because what the NBA did that Wednesday night basically changed everything throughout sports. I was sitting in the hotel room, uh, Jim, we were watching SportsCenter, and I turned to Alan Zinsmeister, my broadcast partner, and I told him when the Gobert news came down, I said, we're not playing tomorrow. You know, I said, I- I'm going to prepare like we are playing, but when that, when the NBA 
pulled the plug, I knew that that, that that there's no way that these conference tournaments could go on. And a couple of them did. I think it was the Big East tournament. They actually pulled the plug at halftime of a game. Yeah, they, they played one half and then and then uh, canceled. Uh, you know, and, and, and I always make this joke with you, not to age you. I mean, you've been doing this a long time, Jim. I mean, you've been writing for a long time, covering sports for a long time, working for the Press Enterprise for a long time. Is there anything in your memory, either before you were a professional or since you've been a professional, that, that fits in the realm of what's going on right now? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I, the closest thing, I guess, would be 9-11 because everything stopped. But you you had a sense that things would settle down and that the games would eventually resume after a reasonable interval. As it turned out, it was what, a couple weeks? And then and then the games started up again. And an interesting story about 9-11. That happened, and I was doing some doing some stories about cancellations and whatnot. And then I got the word that my niece had been murdered and the funeral was going to be that weekend. And so my wife and I packed up the car and we drove up to Washington and it Mm. took us maybe we went straight through. It took us maybe 23 hours to get there. We hustled up there. We were there for the family. We were there for the funeral and then hustled back down. So for from a personal standpoint, there was a lot more going on, mm-hmm. but, the, but the thing about it is that was, you had kind of a defined time and you, you kind of had a, an idea that sports would resume. You didn't know exactly when, but you knew that it was, you knew that it was a fairly short time frame. The difference here is we don't know. I mean, we, we could lose the football season. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody knows if the NBA is going to be able to restart, nobody knows if Major League Baseball is going to play. I mean, the whole Mookie Betts thing where he could be a free agent without ever playing a game for the team that he just got traded to. I mean, that's that's crazy. But it it's also a sign that there's so much uncertainty out there and there's you know, we we just have no idea. So that's what makes this harder than anything that's that's ever come down the pike before the uncertainty and that was watching that and that and also the fact that this has spread as as rapidly as it has and that you know <laughs> in at during 9-11 we didn't have to shelter in place that no. that's another difference i mean it's 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 disrupted everything it has changed our whole lives and i guess the the question that i'll and i'll be writing about this in a couple of days i would imagine is what happens when we come out of this what is our society going to look like what in particular is sports going to look like i suspect it's going to be radically different it's interesting you bring that up. Um, yesterday on uh, Turner Movie Classics, they had a bunch of old sports movies on. They had the Babe Ruth story. They had the the the, the Ronald Reagan movie about Grover Cleveland Alexander. They had Take Me Out to the Ball Game, a classic with uh, Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. And it was interesting because during the Great Depression, sports continued. You know, that's a, that's a big thing everybody points to. You know, there's a fear of an economic meltdown where it would mirror the Great Depression. If you read some people, they're saying we're already in a depression and just the COVID-19 just kind of is going to shine a light on the fact that we are in depression. So 
even at that time during the Great Depression, sports continued. Sports went on, and they're not going on right now. Um, stepping back for a moment, though, Jim, what do you think in terms of prep sports? I mean, you and I spend a good amount of time both. I mean, you've been covering prep sports for years, and those are a lot of questions. So I don't think the school year – I mean, I think the school year at this point is done, I mean, in, in terms of – uh, classroom instruction. So the kids are going to get instruction, but it's going to be online or virtual instruction from the, the year to the end of the year. And, you know, I'm just pump, pumping around on Twitter. Um, the uncertainty about um, the high school football season, there's already been talk about, hey, should the CIF convene a committee to talk about what's going to happen with football? Because normally those programs start in earnest in, in April. I mean, really, they've been going since January with the weightlifting sure. and the conditioning and stuff. But sure. then you get instruction, on-field instruction starts in April, and obviously that's not going to start now. Um, give me some thoughts. Have you talked to anybody about what this situation is with uh, with high school athletics, particularly in the Riverside area? I haven't. I haven't really dipped into that yet. Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I suspect it's going to be similar to what we're seeing with the colleges and to an extent with the pros. I mean, football football is an unusual sport because of the fact that you are basically preparing all year to play 16 games of the month. You know, the, the, the teams that made it to the state finals this year played an entire NFL schedule. So, yeah. uh, but but the thing is that everybody will be starting from the same starting point. So if you lose spring ball, if you lose your optional summer conditioning, we all know it's optional, but it's really not. If everybody starts from the same starting point, if they say, okay, September 1st, then you can start, you, you have maybe a week, you have maybe a week and a half to practice and then you go play okay, nobody's going to be prepared the way coaches would like to be prepared, but everybody will be under the same circumstances. So I, I would be interesting to see how that evolves if it reaches that point where we're talking in it that it's August before these things are finally lifted and teams can finally start practicing and getting ready. You know, how long is it going to take? I mean, if you've got a squad that has a lot of seniors on it, maybe you're going to be able to, to round into shape a little faster than, than teams that aren't as experienced, but everybody will have the same starting point. So that's, and, and right now, again, nobody knows, nobody has any idea what this is going to be like. And, and <laughs> yeah, I think we're all fearing the worst and hoping that it's not going to be that bad. So I don't know. Um, if I were planning, if I were a high school AD right now, here's what I would plan. I'll give you, I'll lay out what I would do. So Monday, March, Monday was March 30th. Okay. I would plan for 10 weeks. So 10 weeks takes us to June 8th, guessing there's going to be a two to three week um, adjustment period in terms of, you know, administrative stuff, getting stuff back in order, um, you know, people maybe who, who are who are not in, in the area having to move back to whatever area they are to a degree of normalcy. I would I wouldn't I wouldn't figure on that being any sooner than July 1st. OK, so assuming on July 1st, you could get students and or parents and or coaches back in a situation where you could, you know, congregate more than 10 of them at one point. 
Um, I would say first day of practice is August 1st, and we push the first games till the that, that Friday after Labor Day, and and then go from there. And maybe you shave off a couple of those non-league games that would normally be played in August, and uh, you just keep the the, the league schedule normal. Um, you know, Vinny Fazio, our friend, uh, more most recently the offensive coordinator at Los Osos, floated what I think is a good idea. And I think right now the CIF should say, hey, if we play this year, we're just going to ditch the bowl games. No bowl games this year. We'll just go through, and it'll be there'll be the 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 whatever the fourteen CIF sectional championships will be the ultimate championships, and then we'll revisit the topic next year. I don't know, Jim, how the money plays in that. If money would talk in that and force the hand to make those games played, but at this point, um, I think most people that I'm I'm in touch with or that I've talked to seem to believe that we'd be fortunate to have a season. So if we do plan for a season, those plans should be made uh, right now, and we should modify the situation now sooner rather than later. I don't know what, what your thought would be on that. I, I would agree with that. I don't know what kind of pushback you would get from the CIF state. I don't know how much money comes in as a result of those regional games and those bowl games. I, you know, I'm sure they've, there's a TV component. There's, there's all kinds of sponsorship components that they would have to, to sort through. My sense is that if it goes, if this goes as long as we think it's going to, and it's going to cut into preparation time, then an eight week regular season would not be out of an eight week regular season would be a triumph. Right. If, if you're if you're able to play eight regular season games and then have a reasonable playoff run, then you've done well. And it's again, it all goes back to the unknown. The other thing I was thinking of, it's got to be driving coaches crazy because especially on the high school level, you don't have any real contact with your players. You don't know mm-hmm. what they're doing. You don't know if they're staying in shape, if they're messing around. I, you know, you can you can FaceTime them or Skype them or call them or text them or what have you. But and this drives coaches under the best of circumstances. It drives coaches crazy not knowing what their players are doing. Just imagine what what this is going to be like as the summer goes on and you have no contact with your players. I mean, I, I'm wondering, Jim, though, if is that a priority at this point? I mean, at this point, it, to it me, shouldn't, it shouldn't pro- be. But you know how coaches are. I do, um, and I'm wondering, particularly, you know, kids in high school and junior high. At this point, I would be most concerned about just their overall well-being from a from an emotional and, and, and a mental standpoint with what's mm-hmm. going on. You know, having lived through through 9/11, it a little bit, little, you know, a little bit more exacerbated in the sense that. I mean, I think the big part, the biggest part for me about this, and we've kind of touched on it, is nobody really knows. You know, I think if somebody got on the news today and told us, all right, it's going to be 10 weeks, it's going to be 12 weeks, it's going to be 20 weeks, we would all have various reactions. But then at least there's a timetable on it. You can um, plan. You know, there's no timetable. I mean, and then the other thing, you know, and depending on what you've read and I, you know, the last couple of days, I'm just not reading as much about it as I was in the last week or so. But there's a theory that there will be, you know, there'll be like a six to eight week period where everything will die down. And then a month into it again, we'll have another surge. 
there's that uh, other surge that now they haven't experienced that in other countries as we as so far as we know in terms of other countries that are a little bit ahead of ours on this on this treatment situation but yeah what if that happens okay what if everything is hunky dory on august 1st and they start school and then on october 1st we need to shut down again for a month and a half you know yeah, that that's very, that's very possible very that's possible a, that's in the realm of possibility um well, you know, trying to spin it into a more positive side, what are some of the stories that you've been talking about? I mean, obviously, I've been following your columns. Good interview with, with Dennis Farrell that you mentioned earlier. But what are what are some of the stories that you've uh, gone over in the last couple of weeks uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of your work? Did a piece that that ran in today's paper on a lady named Alicia Doyle who just wrote a book about her boxing career, mm-hmm. and it's. It's less about look at what I did, look what I won, as about how she got into it and how it affected her and and, and how boxing was kind of I, I I hate to use metaphor for life, but but it was a deal where where she'd been she'd been dealing with a lot of stuff and to get into that sport and to get into the training and to do it all out made a difference in her life. And she wrote a book called Fighting Chance. And I, I believe it was self-published and it's available through Barnes and Noble and, and Amazon and whatnot. And I, I, I read it. It's funny because we had the, the conversation and, and I, she said, I can tell by your questions that you read the book. Most of the people that have talked to me about it haven't read the book before they had the interview. And, and I said, you know, what, how, how silly is that? I, I would imagine that if you're going to interview somebody who wrote a book, you would want to know what they were writing about, right? You you would mm-hmm. want to you would want to read the book, and that way you could ask better questions. So, unless but, you're but Larry that, King, it was, it was unless you're Larry story. King, unless yeah, Larry, Larry King, King. that's his thing. He doesn't like if he's interviewing you, he doesn't read the book, and he just goes into it. He wants to go into it as ignorant as audience. So, um, but okay, San Antonio, uh, hello, yeah, hello. <laughs> Um, all right. So we were joking before about 105. And the reason we began the interview at 105 here on Wednesday, um, uh, part of what we're going to talk about is the HBO uh, documentary Women of Troy about the USC women's basketball program from uh, the 1980s. Uh, you had the opportunity in high school. And I, I, you, know, you told me you didn't really cover her a lot, but you did get a chance to cover Cheryl Miller. And Cheryl Miller had 105 points in a high school basketball game for Riverside Poly. I guess my question to you is, what was girls basketball like then in the late 70s, early 80s? It was hardly as advanced as it is now. It was It was played low to the ground for the most part. First time I saw Cheryl play, she was a 15-year-old freshman, and they were playing in a tournament out in Palm Springs, and I, they said, go out there and, and do a story. So I went out there, and, and to preface it, before we get too deep into this, I was a little, and I wasn't that old at the time anyway, but mm-hmm. I was a little leery of adolescent and pre-adolescent athletes because I had an experience with Cynthia Woodhead, Sippy Woodhead, who was a uh, world-class swimmer uh, out of Riverside. She was like 12 years old and she was breaking records and she was going to make the Olympic team. And as it turned out, that was 1980. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't have an, or we had an Olympic team, but it did not go to Moscow. So she was 
iced out of the Olympics. But but I was doing interviews with her when she was like 12 and 13 years old and she never said anything. I mm-hmm. mean, she was shy and, you know, the interview process was kind of foreign to her. So you get one word answers or two word answers. You never got any elaboration. So so I figure, OK, that's just not good. So they say, OK, go out and talk to Cheryl. And, you know, we th- there had already been buzz in the community about this. This is a girl that's really good. So I go out there and, and, and I talk to her. And like I say, she's a freshman. And I, I don't remember the details of the game. I believe they won. I, I'm pretty sure she had a good game. And I talked to her after afterward, and it was like, just open the spigot, and it all comes out. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had, she had a personality then, and it has never left her. I mean, I, I've, I've always found her delightful to talk to, and it, it started from there. Did you cover you covered Reggie, I'm guessing, too, when he was at Poly? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The, the great. Well, there's there's two great stories that come out of their childhood. The one was when uh, they would have they, they would have pickup games down, down at uh, Adam's school. So so Reggie would go down there and, and uh, Cheryl would tag along and she kind of hide in the hide in the bushes. And, and Reggie would say, hey, you guys want to play? Play. 21 or play play to 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 15 by ones or what have you i know what i'll tell you what i'll do you guys against me and my sister and so the guys that they're playing are going like okay yeah yeah you want to make a little bet on this one too yeah sure go ahead so cheryl comes out from behind the bushes and and they're warming up and she's just kind of doing the doofus act right you know can't dribble can't shoot and then the game starts, and Reggie and Cheryl just put a whooping on them. So <laughs> they did this a few times, and then they quit. Then, then they couldn't do it anymore because word got out. <laughs> okay. But the other, the other story was the night that Cheryl got 105 against Norda Vista, and you know, it was like 170 to something. It was, it was just a butt whooping, and she was in there all game. The boys were playing at Nordvista that night. So they all get home. Cheryl says, what'd you do, Reggie? Oh, I got 35. We won. What'd you do, Cheryl? Oh, I got 105. <laughs> Was Jeff Gorham coaching either of those teams? No, I'm kidding. Our, our, our good friend, Jeff. I think, um, I think his, I think his dad was coaching the, the, the boys team, but. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, it's, I've heard a different variation of that story. But so the added advantage is this is actually true that it actually yes. happened. Yeah. Um, now, and the, I, the, the other the other story, Reggie, Reggie would tell me this story and Cheryl would back it up that the, there were rose bushes in the Miller's backyard, Carrie's rose bushes, and they had the hoop out there. And Reggie reached a point where he was trampling the rose bushes when he took his jump shot. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's how, that's how much his range has ex- had extended, but it got his mom ticked off because you're messing with my rose bushes. <laughs> um, let's jump to the women, women of Troy, which I thought was fantastic. Um, it's about an hour long HBO put it on about the, that those great USC teams, um, Cheryl Miller, Cynthia Cooper, the McGee twins, 
and it was interesting because I really the the part that jumped out to me, Jim, is obviously Cheryl Miller is, is a legend, and you know I grew up watching her cover the NBA. She was a she was an analyst and a sideline reporter on TNT covering the NBA, and then you know watching her play in the Olympics. But um, what was interesting to me is it kind of gave us. You know, like we have all these Marvel superhero movies now, the origin stories, kind of a great origin story for modern women's basketball, you know, because you had Sonia Hogue, who was the coach of Louisiana Tech, who later coached Baylor and Kim Mulkey played for Sonia Hogue. And then we kind of get the, 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 you know, the both ends of it. We bookend it real nicely with USC playing against Pat Summit in Tennessee uh, in the NCAA final. I think it was in 83 or 84. I forget which one. It was 84. And then, 84, and then you get Gino in there um, as well, kind of this, the beginning of the of the UConn dynasty. Um, in addition to learning about this team from USC, and you know what the, the most intriguing wrinkle to me was, uh, Cheryl Miller was all set to go play for UCLA before things turned around a little bit. Yes, and it's interesting because I had done a piece on the McGees the year before when Cheryl was still at Riverside Poly, and the McGee's had gotten to USC and they were, they were dominant players. I mean, they were really good and, and they were fun to talk to too. I mean, and I don't just watching that documentary and watching them interact, that personality has not left them. But what struck me was when they were talking during the documentary about how they talked to Cheryl and they said, you can either play with us and win a championship or you can go somewhere else and go through us to win a championship. The implication being it ain't going to be that simple. <laughs> and I think I, I, Cheryl made the right choice, obviously. But what that I, I, watching that documentary and watching the game footage from that documentary and watching the way the USC women played the game as opposed to the way Louisiana Tech played the game. I mean, it was it was like the level of play in college women's college basketball went from here to here. Just from that collection of players, because they 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 just took it to another level. I mean, it's just it was the talent, the athleticism, the aggression the, the take no prisoners attitude. It was something that I don't think women's college basketball had been accustomed to. And, and uh, the other, the other point to make is that was about the time that the NCAA was really getting serious about sponsoring women's basketball. I think there'd been one NCAA tournament before that USC Louisiana tech game. Because the AIAW, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, had handled women's athletics. And, and you know, the, the smaller schools were, were able to dominate. And then the NCAA comes in and, and basically bigfooted the AIAW for, for whatever for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I think it but, had been one or two one or two years, Jim. When, when yeah. USC played Louisiana Tech, it was either the second or third year that women's basketball was under the NCAA purview. Uh, yeah, and I think for a, for a time, for a time, you had some teams that went to the NCAA and some teams that continued, some programs that continued to play in the AIAW. And after about a year, a year or two, 
the AIAW basically folded its tent. So everybody, you know, everybody played under under the NCAA banner. Um, you know, it just showed me in terms of, again, in terms of context. So obviously the McGee, you know, JaVale McGee is the son of one of the McGee sisters or, mm-hmm. and playing the NBA. And it, it, it widened the scope of it for me because in covering men's college basketball, you'd be, I mean, maybe you wouldn't be shocked. So many guys playing now, you know, and have played over the last decade or so. In their bios, you'll see that mom played college basketball, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you, and, and yeah. your coaches make the joke all the time is they want to know about mom. They want to know what did mom do, you know. Um, <laughs> we, we've we discussed, you know, UC Riverside, you know, where I met you covered UC Riverside, um, that in the in the in the 70s, you know, UCR was was kind of a power even on the women's side in both volleyball and in basketball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mavis Washington, who was an All-American yes. for uh, basketball and volleyball at UC Riverside is another inland inland player. Cheryl Miller, obviously, I mean, regarded by many as the greatest woman ever to play basketball. Um, you know, coming out of Riverside Poly is, is a great story. But that the, the great thing about that USC team is so they end kind of the Louisiana Tech dynasty, and then they move forth. And the next team they play was it '84, Jim? They played in the '84. Was it '85 when they, they won that played, second? They played in they played in the championship game in '83 and '84. I looked this up. They so, played Louisiana okay. Tech in '83, and then '84 they played Tennessee. Right. And that so, was interesting because Pat Summit was going to coach the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And she was not fond of Cheryl's style of play. She thought it was a little bit too showboatish, a little bit too Hollywood. Uh, they were they were able to come to an accord for the Olympic tournament, but but it and that was another indication that Cheryl had expanded the boundaries of women's basketball because now it was okay to punt the ball into the stands after you won, maybe. Some people didn't think it was okay, but this was this was where we were now. I mean, players players had personalities and they were showing them. Um, did you cover? I'm a, I'm guessing you covered that team a little bit. That you a little team. bit, yeah, yeah. I, and if, it's funny because I was on the UCLA beat at the time, so mm-hmm. I saw them when they played UCLA. Mostly. But uh, yes, I, I did. I, I remember the I think it was the second year, the first the first championship they played at Norfolk. The second year, I believe it was at Pauley Pavilion. Mm-hmm. So but we covered that. So. But I mean, it was you, you got the sense. And this was even without knowing what we know now, what we saw in that documentary the personalities and the, the, the athletes involved there. But you just got a sense, even just by watching the games, that things were changing and things were changing rapidly in women's basketball. Um, it, it, what was wild was there's no professional league for women back then. So if you're a woman and you wanted to play professionally, you generally went overseas. And I didn't realize that Cheryl Miller got hurt and never really got the opportunity to play professionally, uh, I, I guess blew blew her knee out her senior year and never got and playing a pickup game of all things, mm-hmm. um, and never really got the opportunity. 
to, to experience overseas. Now, Cynthia Cooper did. Cynthia Cooper went and played overseas for nearly a decade and then ended up coming back and did end up playing in the, in the WNBA as well. Yes, yes. And, and, and I, I think that's the great unanswered question is if Cheryl had not gotten hurt and she had been able to go overseas and play professionally, I, what would have happened? What would have happened? Would there, would there at some point maybe have been a groundswell that would have gotten a professional women's basketball league on this continent years before it actually happened? I don't know. You mentioned UCLA, covering UCLA, and it was interesting because as a, as a young guy, I remember my first – I remember the first women's basketball player I ever heard of was Ann Myers. Mm-hmm. And that was because Ann Myers had tried – you know, Ann Myers is Drysdale now, but she had tried out for the Pacers. So uh, that must have been in the late 70s, right, Jim? Something like that? Yes. Yeah, because I think Ann – I think she graduated in – I want to say 76 or 77. I'd have to go back and look it up to be sure. But yeah, it was, it was around that era. And she, you know, she went to the Pacers camp. It was kind of a publicity stunt. I mean, mm-hmm. but I, it was also a recognition that, Hey, this girl can play. And the fact, you know, and she had a brother who played in the NBA as well. Dave Myers. Right. Right, right, yeah, and that was the yeah she had the connection to Wooden and all that stuff. So that's you know, and obviously was a great player in her own right at UCLA. So I mean, two of the greatest women's players ever, both have played you know in Southern California. And Ann Myers, I believe, was from Orange County and uh, played Uh, for UCLA. I believe believe La Habra, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, And then obviously Cheryl Miller from Riverside uh, going to play for USC, and then yeah, we just see how far we come. With you know the rivalry obviously between Pat Summit and between you know Ariama and then obviously some of the great teams we have seen since then. I heard a great Cheryl story, Cheryl Miller story from Jody Wynn, who is now the head coach at Washington, who played mm-hmm. for Cheryl Miller at, when she was at USC. In fact, when I guess when right. when um, when Jody was at USC, I think she had three coaches in four years, and Cheryl Miller was one of them. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how Cheryl Miller would play pickup every day with the uh, basketball with the football coaches from UC from USC they would all have this pickup game they would play and that she needed to have kind of a cleanup knee surgery um, in both knees and that she got them done the same day uh, you know this is back in the in the early to mid 90s between about 91 right. and 94 when she, when Jody was there and that was a that was a wild story for somebody to have surgery on the on the on you know both knees on the same day just kind of shows you what level that she was operating at. They must have had an incredible threshold for pain after all those knee problems she'd had throughout, I would, throughout her I career. I would think so, and, and that was still kind of the sort of the prehistoric era in sports medicine. I mean, it was more advanced than it had been, but there was a still there was still a quite quite a distance to go to get to where we are now, where you can just you know, you, you can go in and cut on somebody and clean up their knee or their elbow, and within four to six weeks, they're ready to go again. Um, so just to kind of put a wrap on this, your career in terms of covering the women's game, NCAA, and obviously now professionally, I mean, what strides has it come from those, you know, the, the women of Troy teams that were portrayed in that HBO documentary to where at the college level the women's game is now? It is, it's night and day. 
it, it, it is absolutely night and day because players are far more athletic. It's the game is still played a little bit below the rim, but it's played at a much higher level just in terms of jumping ability than it was then. Players, players are tremendously skilled today. It, it, it is, it, it, it's just incomprehensible. Uh, watching that documentary and watching, watching the way the game was played then, and then watching the game the way it's played now, watching Oregon this season, watching UCLA, it, it's just, it's incomprehensible. It's hard to describe. It's, it's just so different. I mean, obviously the level of participation is huge now you have camps now it's so easy i mean i you know i think i mentioned it it's like back then if you were a girl who was good at basketball to find a camp you had to go you know you mean you might have to drive 30 40 miles to find a right mm. camp whereas yeah. now most of the schools most of the universities d1 and even non-d1 they have some kind of camp going on that you can you know girls as young as five and six years old can go and attend and at least get the experience of playing basketball they have the camps they have the summer summertime ball. I mean, the the AAU component for for the girls, just like the boys. I mean, it it's all it's all equal now. I mean, it, it's the 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 structure is the same. So because of that, the girls that come out now are lo- a lot more advanced. And the advancement, the skill, the fact that. These girls can watch college basketball, women's college basketball on TV on a regular basis. They couldn't do that when when in Cheryl's day or even for about 10 or 15 years after that. I mean, what what ESPN has done and the other sports networks to put the women's game on TV has had a lot to do with that advancement, plus the, the WNBA. Since we're on the topic, have you had any chance to look into? I know UC Riverside hired a new women's coach. I think it was yesterday or the day before. Day um, before. Do you have any information on that? You had a chance to talk to anybody, Jim? Haven't really. Uh, Brian Robin did that story for us the other day. Um, mm-hmm. Nicole Powell, who played at Stanford, played in the WNBA for I think like eleven years. And she had been an assistant coach at Oregon and I guess was involved in the uh, recruitment of Sabrina Ionescu. So that's a feather in her cap. And then she's been at uh, um, Grand Canyon the last three or four years. Uh, Her record, her total record was under 500. But I think this year they were like 15 and 11. So it's like they were making progress. So it will be interesting to see now. Her going to uh, to UCR and, and uh, taking over that program, exactly what happens after after the turbulence that they've faced over the last year. Do you know? I mean, I mean, I guess you have, you have, I, it, did did they mention anything about Sarah's status? Whether she would stay as an assistant? She was the interim Sarah Bell, who was the interim coach for this season uh, before they bought in Coach Powell. I would hope. They would they would let her stay and let her be on the staff with Coach Powell. If you I would hope, so. I would hope so too. I would hope they would do the same for her as they did for her husband Justin when when David Patrick took over because it was the same deal. <clears throat> Justin was the interim coach after the coach got fired. Dennis Cuts, he was the interim coach, and then when David Patrick was hired, he kept Justin on as his associate head coach. So, 
I would hope that they would do the same, but I don't know. I mean, you, you bring somebody in, they want to bring their own people. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Nobody, nothing was said about that at the time. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out over the next few weeks. And, and again, part of the, part of the issue here is that, okay, you're taking over, but you're not going to have any specific contact with any of your players aside from FaceTime or phone or what have you. So it's going to be a, a more of a hill to climb just because, you know, it, it, in, in assembling your program and hiring assistant coaches and whatnot, it's going to be a little more difficult. Did you get a chance to watch the men's team at all this year, Jim? Saw them like about two or three times. I saw them a bunch of times on Big West TV. That's kind of the way I consume UCR sports these days. But uh, <clears throat> I was impressed. I was impressed by the strides that they made. I was impressed. And, and I think if I, I was able to listen to the uh, the conference call of coaches before uh, before the tournament that didn't take place, <clears throat> and the fact that so many of them talked in such glowing terms about UCR's defense. And okay, some of that's blowing smoke because that's what coaches do. Right. But they they really did a great job locking people down all season long. I mean, I think they were like eighth, seventh or eighth in uh, uh, scoring defense, right behind Baylor, right ahead of Kansas. So that's good company. That tells you that tells you that that uh, David's on the right track. Well, that's definitely what he's selling. He's selling that defense, and if he can get a couple of guys next year who can come in and score the ball, maybe they could turn it around a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I thought they had a very good year this year, and I really, you know, they kind of got, I thought, a little tough matchup for them with Santa Barbara in the first round, even though they played a couple of close games. Santa Barbara had been playing better of late, and obviously you didn't know whether Heidegger was going to play or not. That was going to be a big factor um, on the neutral court. But, yeah, I, I definitely th- felt they had at least a puncher's chance in that first-round game uh, against UC Santa Barbara in the Big West tournament. Um, you didn't get a chance. I know you didn't get a chance to watch any of the baseball for, for UCR this year. Had you had a chance to talk to Troy at all or anybody involved with the baseball program? I haven't yet. I've been meaning to talk to him. You know, needing needing columns, he's always a good column, so I'm probably going to be lobbing him a call in a day or two. What I'm curious about is, you know, Cole is going to be, I, I guess he's a redshirt sophomore this year. Yeah. But I believe he's going to be draft eligible. Yeah. And there's a lot of guys in that situation that now if the draft's only going to be like five rounds, what happens? What What's going to happen with all these guys who are sort of on the cusp, but are, are in all likelihood not going to get drafted just because it's been it's been chopped so so mercilessly. Do they go well, back to school? I mean, what happens? Yeah. The wrinkle for me, Jim, is that if you're undrafted, they're going to cap the bonus at twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? So a guy like Cole, okay. If he doesn't go in the first five rounds, but they're still able to give him that slot money that he would have gotten in the fifth or sixth round, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, that changes the equation a whole lot. To, okay, I'm undrafted, but I'm still getting that slot money that I would would have otherwise gotten. Now you're not getting that money. Yeah. So now, if you're outside of the top five rounds, 
Um, it, I, to me, the decision is real easy. If you're an underclassman, you know, you'd go back for the leverage unless, you know, you didn't think you could get any more out of college. Um, the other question is, how does this change how the major leagues do drafts? Um, I mean, you, you were the one kind of floated the idea that, hey, junior colleges are going to really benefit from this because maybe the big leaguers will be a little bit more uh, um, circumspect with regard to their giving high schoolers money. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe a yeah. high school kid who would be a fourth or fifth round pick doesn't get drafted now because, you know, you can offer him twenty thousand dollars and nobody will be able to outbid you for him. And a lot of that is that. College players are more you, you've seen more of college players, so you have a better sense of what they can do for a high school player who's in his senior year and all of a sudden his season is cut short. And in the East, they may have never even been able to get started because of weather before before all this happened. How would you take a chance with a first round pick on a high school player that you really haven't seen that much of and you really don't have the information both on the field and off the field? What kind of character is he? What kind of, you know, what kind of a kid is he? Are you actually going to make that investment on a kid that you don't really know a whole lot about? So what I see happening is the JCs are going to benefit dramatically because they're going to get a lot of kids that were in between really good players. And let me also say that there's going to be a squeeze at both ends because if you've got seniors that will get an extra year of eligibility. And it remains to be seen in the spring sports how many of those kids take advantage of it and how many of them can take advantage of it because of scholarship money and, you know, can I really afford to go to school an extra year? Do I really want to take classes for an extra year, et cetera? But you're going to get squeezed two ways because, okay, maybe rosters are going to be a little more flexible. You may have more roster spots but you've got more players that are already on hand and you're going to be recruiting players. So there's still a limited number of spots. And a lot of those kids coming out, a lot of those talented kids coming out are going to say, okay, I'm just going to go to JC maybe a year, maybe two years and then go from there. So the, the, the quality of college community college baseball is going to be a lot better next year. Well, especially in the state of California, for sure. Um, yes. The one thing that's unclear—I I, gotta—it's I, this is on me. I gotta go do the research on it. Now, my understanding is that there's a possibility that if you're a senior returning, that you won't count against the 11-7. If that's the that's, case, I, I think that's—I think that's what they've—what they're talking about—that they're going to loosen that 11-7 because of this. See if that's the case, that could that could help a lot of teams. And I, I just with with UC Riverside, they were nine and seven when everything was shut down. But you forget they they were one and four, and so they'd won eight of eleven since that one and four start. And three of those losses were at UCLA right. to one of the top ten teams in the country, and, and and they were playing really really well. And Cole was throwing well, and Zach Jacobs was throwing well, 
And in the past, Troy has had trouble with injuries. But this year, it was kind of the reverse because they were getting guys back. You know, they mm-hmm. got they Hafar started the season injured. They got him back. Latchman had started to throw when everything got shut down, and they're waiting on Petrovic. So he was going to get a bit of an infusion. Um, in terms of his pitching staff and his bullpen in particular, um, meaning Troy, going forward. And they seem to just, I, I told a bunch of people this, they had a little bit of a vibe to them this year. You mm-hmm. know, a little bit of a vibe to them with regard to, they didn't necessarily have the set lineup they may have had in years past, but they had a lot of guys who had understood their roles and were really willing to contribute and had really had really contributed um, over those first few games, uh, you know, whatever, the, the 16 games of the, the season. And let me ask you this, because we had talked about that. I remember the uh, <clears throat> the final game of last season when we were doing a little on-air stuff. And I think the one thing that we, we both discussed was Troy had talked about how this was a really good group. And there was, it was a bunch of kids that were still playing hard, even as the season was winding down with no, no anticipation of postseason or anything. It was still a, a good group and, and a, a group that you like to be hanging around at the ballpark. Was there, um, was there that same vibe with this group? About two years ago, Troy told me they really revamped the, the recruiting process or the recruiting uh, methodology for UCR. And even not that it changed, he really focused on now that, you know, he came in thinking he knew college baseball. And in the first two or three years, he learned a lot, obviously, on the job, just learning about how the game was played. And then you know, he developed relationships with coaches, you know, has a great relationship with Rick Vanderhoek over at Fullerton, had a very good relationship with um, Mike Gillespie at UC Irvine, a couple other guys. I know he and Savage had spoke a great deal, you know, in terms of – so what happened was UCR was supposed to go to Nebraska. And obviously when Darren Erstad got bumped out there – you know, they called, you know, Troy called over there and said, hey, is there any way we can get out of this? And Nebraska said, yeah, no problem. You know, we have other people there that we can bring in. And then UCLA lost their opening series. I think it was Georgia Tech had to, had to gerrymander or something. They were going to come this spring. Uh, this spring, They ended up having to push it to next year for what – I forget what the reason was. And so then, you know, it was about – that series that opened, you know, the uh, uh, Valentine's Day weekend wasn't agreed to till about six weeks before. So in between those six weeks from the beginning of January till the time they play, I think Troy and John Savage started talking a little bit. And Troy actually was pretty uh, candid with me that they lost. And John called him after the series and said, listen, you know – don't let the fact that you guys lost those three games discourage you because I think you guys are pretty good. I think you guys are going to be pretty good, and we're going to do – meaning UCLA. We're going to do that to a lot of teams where they just don't hit us because we pitch so well You know, because generally early in the season, the pitchers are a little bit ahead of the hitters. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I'd heard that – you know, in terms of the polls and stuff, you know, Riverside was 0-3 over that first weekend. And in a couple of the, the media polls, they got some votes. You know, they were like in the late 40s in a couple of those polls that go 50 and 60 deep. And that was because John Savage had made some calls and said, hey, this Riverside team is pretty good. Watch them, you know. And, and it turned out that, that he, he kind of knew what he was talking about. But getting back to the question you asked me, Troy just said, listen, I want to go after guys who can who can compete. And we're going to go after it. So I don't, you know, obviously the measurables are important, but if there's a borderline guy in terms of the measurables who I think competes well, I'm going to want him. And two great examples of that were Jacob Shanks, who's going into his sophomore year, the catcher from Santiago in Corona, and then Zach Jacobs, the right-handed pitcher who came out of, out of uh, San Dimas, who, you know, 
as a high school senior was throwing 85 to 87, wasn't really going to wow anybody. But Troy said, listen, he's a 160-pound kid. By the time he's a junior, he'll be 90, 91. And I just love the way he competes. And in his third collegiate start, he went up to St. Mary's and threw a shutout. I think it was a three-hit shutout he threw. And the last freshman to throw a complete game shutout for UCR was a guy you might remember, Jim, named Matt Andrees. He's pitching mm-hmm. for the Angels. He's pitching for right. the Angels now. Yes. So, um, but yeah, as far as the guys who were back, um, you know, talk about Nathan Webb, talk about a Skylar Dillis Reyes, uh, talk about a Dylan Oric, Travis Bohall. Yeah, there was a good group there. You could sense there was a cohesiveness there. A lot of local kids who grew up playing travel ball with each other who not only play well together, but play well for each other, which was really, really important. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, the Troy Percival, uh, you know, his his little touch on it is he really understands how a bullpen works. And their bullpen, if you watch, I think they went about 20, their 20 innings after UCLA, they gave up one run in those next 20 innings, one earned run over the next 20 innings. And I think even if you factor in, they had a little bit of a blow up against St. Mary's, it was like four earned runs over 26 innings for the bullpen when the se- you know it, when the season was was called to an abrupt halt. And I, you talk about Troy knowing how a bullpen works, but a bullpen in college baseball works differently than a bullpen in the pros. No, so, certainly. Was, was I'm there, talking about. Was there? I'm ta- was there? Was I'm, I'm just asking. Was there some education there as well? No, I'm talking about just in terms of him working with the actual pitchers. Mm, you know, okay. him, you know, Andre Granillo coming in and being kind of, you know, is joking. You know, your old your old buddy Matt Hurst and I did a did a podcast a couple of days ago on Bull Durham, and Andre Granillo came in. He was he was Calvin Ebby Lelouch. You know, he 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 could throw <laughs> the ball really hard. But, it, you know, would it go near the plate? And so, you know, Troy actually got him to back off. You know, he said, son, I don't need you to throw 94-95. If you can throw 92-93, that'll be plenty good. And he had a pretty good curveball. But he said, you know, the problem with the curveball is sometimes the the ump's not going to call that, particularly when you're dropping it, you know, the 12 to 6. So they went to work with him on a cutter, which he turned into a slider. And then all of a sudden, I think over his last 25 innings of the season, he gave up seven earned runs after having given up 19, I think, in his first nine innings of the season. Mm. Um, and then he was better this He was even better this year. You know, a guy like Kevin West, who was so tantalizing, throwing 93-94 and couldn't get anybody out. And same thing. Troy, okay, learned his, took him a couple of years to learn his personality and said, son, you need to slow down. You know, and then all of a sudden um, – Kevin slows down. I think he gave up one earned run over his last 12 innings and was throwing the ball pretty well this year as well. Uh, Riley Ole came in and you know was a starter, but would have a you know, he would just he would go four innings and then have a bad inning or go three innings and have a bad inning. Uh, Troy got him to work to the bullpen to where he was throwing strikes and you know big six foot seven right hander throws you know 88 to 90 and then his secondary pitch the breaking ball was was pretty good. Um, that Connor Martin had come in off Tommy John surgery. He had worked with him and he'd kind of become a factor out of the bullpen. So, you know, it was just about, uh, about, uh, as far as f- from a college coaching standpoint, Jim, it was about Troy learning his personnel and saying, okay, you know, I see this guy maybe giving me this role, but it looks like he's probably better suited for this role and just identifying that earlier because you and I both saw seasons where guys would start the year in one role and end the year in another role, mm-hmm. and that didn't work well for either the player or for the team. Whereas, you know, you're constantly, you know, you know how it is in college coaching. If you're not, 
you know, Vanderbilt or UCLA where everybody's coming in, you need to constantly evaluate from beginning to end of the season. And I thought right. he was able to do that. Um, and, and they looked really good this year. And it's unfortunate we'll never know what that team could have done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I just seeing their, seeing their record and you see those first three games against UCLA. And even if you didn't see those games, you kind of have to, you, you figure, okay, you discount those because yeah. UCLA is, is, you know, top five in the nation. So, so I'm just looking, just looking at scores. You got the sense that, you know, they're, they're on the right track. And, and like you say, it's really unfortunate that it had to come to a halt when it did, because I would have been, I would have been very interested to see how they would have kept it going once they got into big West. I mean, the last few years, that's been kind of, you know, yeah, April, you get, April into, has you been get there. into conference and maybe you have a little bit ahead of steam, and then you know you're <laughs> those 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 series didn't work out too well. But I would yeah. have been interested to see how they would have handled it this year. Um, yeah, we actually they would have opened on the road this past weekend at Fullerton, and then this this coming weekend would have been a home series against. Uh, uh, Long Beach State. So we would have figured out pretty early what we would have known. Would you would have known right off. Yeah. Um, well, before we sign off, and again, thanks for the for the time, Jim. Uh, talking to Jim Alexander, Riverside Press Enterprise, Southern California News Group. Um, one or the other, or both at the same time. Um, <laughs> depends uh, on the day. Depends on the story. When, when you're not churning out the columns, Jim, what what are you kind of doing to keep yourself busy through this? I'm just I'm guessing just you and your wife in the house right now. Yes. Yes. And uh, TV. Occasionally, I've I, I've got like a night I've got a bunch of books piled on the nightstand, and I'm trying to go through them as much. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to peel them off one after the other. I haven't made a dent yet, but I'm still working on it. That is there is there a puzzles. Is there a particular but, book you've been waiting to read or needing waiting to have time to read? Not really. Not really. There's I, it's novels and there's a couple of nonfiction and it's just no, it's nothing. No, uh, no bestsellers yet, but uh, something what's, past the time. What's one fun thing that you've stumbled on in the in the quarantine that you like doing now that you that you kind of picked up because you've been around the house? I'll tell you mine after you tell me yours. <laughs> If I had one, I mean, I'm doing a lot more crossword puzzles these days, I guess. Okay. okay. So I, you know, one of the first things I did when I realized I was going to be home for a while, and it took me, I was in denial, to be honest with you, for the first three days. It was like that old uh, sketch where Dan Aykroyd plays uh, Jimmy Carter on Saturday Night Live. And I said, oh, it'll be a few days and we'll be back. So it took me three or four days to really process what was going on with this situation. And so I think about a week in, a week after everything was done, I went and I just, you know, a long, a long overdue uh, kind of re reorganization of my kitchen and, you know, uh, cleaning and reorganizing. And I'd found that a friend of mine who had left to, to leave, move out of town had left me with a bunch of their kitchen appliances, so to speak. And one of the things he left me was his French fry cutter. You know, it's one of these uh, machines that you see in the, like in, in and out or something where you just cut potatoes into fries. And so one of the purchases I made when I stocked up for the, for the pandemic was I bought a 10 pound bag of potatoes. And, um, but three months ago, I, I finally invested in a com combination toaster oven air fryer. So man, 
fresh cut fries are on the menu and are they ever and i've tried every variation <laughs> you know and i'll tell you what i love that air fryer i think i tried to make an apple pie in there the other day so between the fry cutter and the air fryer i'm having plenty of fun all um, right here on the west side but uh Gener jim alexander Gazal's house <laughs> it's a pleasure as always man it's always fun to talk to you i i, I hope sooner than later I'll be able to see you at an event some way, shape, or form, whether it's at the Plex or a football game or something of that nature. I agree. I mean, I was looking forward to seeing you guys at the uh, Honda Center that day. Yes. Things well, happen. I, I, before I let you go, uh, late news came down the other day. Jim Wooldridge has retired as athletic director at RCC. And yes. I think I bumped into you a couple times there where RCC's football team under Tom Kraft, they won a national championship this year. Um, had you interacted with, with coach very much while he was at RCC, Jim? A little bit. I mean, not, not on a day to day basis, but you know, I, I would show up at football games and I'd see him there and we'd, we'd talk and, and uh, I had a good chance to sit down with him a couple years ago at the end of the school year <clears throat> after they'd, they'd won like three state championships in the in that academic year. I mean, it's, the, the, that program is, you know, given the facilities involved and given given the, the fact that it it's sort of low. I guess it's I guess you could say it's low profile. It's kind of under the radar, but they've they have achieved so much. And a lot of it is Jim's leadership style because he he he's there when he needs to be there, but he's not hovering over their shoulders. And I, I, I think that a lot of this, a lot of the success that the individual coaches and individual programs have had comes from that leadership style. So they're going to, they're going to miss him. You know, I, I got a chance to speak with him a couple times this year, just covering football games over there. And he really just, I, 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 my observation, Jim, was he really was in his element. He seemed really content. Um, he seemed to really have embraced the role that, that he'd been thrust into there. And obviously, as you mentioned, that the, the program had really, really been thriving, which I thought was great for both him and for the city. But and it, was, um, it was interesting. It was interesting because when I talked to him a couple of years ago, he talked at length about how much he loves that community and the yeah. idea that that when UCR let him go, that, you know, am I? is there going to be a place for me here? Do we pack up and go back to, to Texas or what have you? And the RCC job came at the perfect juncture. And it, it was, it was a blessing and it enabled him to sink his roots even deeper into the Riverside community. They love him and he loves it. So, and they love you, Jim Alexander, despite what uh, some, some of the, the online commentators may say. Uh, truly, you are, a, you are a, if not a national treasure, you're definitely a local treasure out there in the 951. Always great I'll to talk it. to you. Always great to talk to you. Again, I hope we're interacting sooner than later somewhere in some kind of athletic venue. Jim Alexander, thanks again. I'm for that. Thank you. All right. Take care.